so we're orientated for a new axis. Remember, our x-axis is now right atrial pressure. However, in this set of experiments, the x-axis is not our determining axis. That's our output axis. That's the thing that we're looking to see what happens. We, however, are going to change the cardiac output to our determinant axis. Now, let's imagine we've stopped the pump, where a cardiac output is zero, and therefore, the pressure that we've got here, the mean circulatory filling pressure or the mean systemic filling pressure, same thing, MCFP or MSFP, will be at about 7 millimeters of mercury. As we increase the rate of the pump, that right atrial pressure will drop and drop and drop to lower values until the pump is working so hard that the right atrial pressure drops to zero, it sucks in on itself, and we reach the natural ceiling to how much flow can occur through the system. If we pressurize the system by introducing more volume, again, what we're going to do is we're going to stop the pump and introduce more volume. We augment the mean circulatory filling pressure. We pressurize the system. We go from 7 millimeters of mercury up to 9 millimeters of mercury. However, as we start the pump, what we find is that the right atrial pressure again drops because we're withdrawing blood from the right atrium and passing it into the aorta. So we're sucking blood out of the right atrial space and pushing it forward. The harder the pump works, the more the right atrial pressure falls. And it falls and it falls and it falls down to two, down to zero. As soon as the right atrial pressure gets to zero, now the right atrium collapses on itself. We've now reached the natural ceiling to how much flow we can get through the pump. On the other hand, we can remove fluid from the system, depressurize the system, and start from a lower right atrial pressure. Now when we start the pump, the right atrial pressure falls. It falls. It gets to zero at around about 5.5 liters here. Now right atrium collapses. We can sustain no more flow. So we are, in this graph, controlling the y-axis and looking at the x-axis as an output. And remember, we can pressurize the system in one of two ways. Either add volume or squeeze on the container walls. Squeeze on the venous uh, system. So, let's look at this other situation. Here's when we stop the pump and we look to see what the mean circulatory or the mean systemic filling pressure is. Vasoconstriction, vasoconstriction. Get those two clear, vaso versus veno. And I'm sorry if the Scottish accent is hard to decipher, but vasoconstriction does not change your mean circulatory filling pressure because it's one little pinch off in a rather large circuit. However, what we do know is that if we constrict the arterioles, we retard blood flow from the arterial to the venous side, and therefore we can't sustain as much cardiac output. And that's exactly what we see. We see a drop in the available cardiac output, but no change in the mean circulatory filling pressure. Now, another way to think of it is, as the pump is working hard, removing blood from the venous side, it is not being replenished from the arterial side because of the resistance. Therefore, we've got lower pressures in that space, and lower volume in that space. On the other hand, 
if we dilate and vasodilate, again, doesn't change the mean circular filling pressure, but it does allow more blood to migrate from the arterial to the venous side, and it does allow augmentation of the cardiac output. So we see a higher steady-state cardiac output is available when we turn our pump up. Okay. We already did this already. So let's not bother doing that again. Or well, let's see if more than 32% get it right this time. Okay, 4.35, any more takers? Going once, going twice, and we've gone. Okay, so, nice, 93% of you were, had a pulse. Okay, that's good. So we finish there, and then we can flip on to our next lecture, which is right here. So let's now make the magic happen after we do another damn question, which is to bring these two experimental words together. Okay, let's give it a try. Let's see what we make of this one. Okay, 70% of you got it correct. An increased peripheral resistance will reduce aortic runoff. It will augment aortic diastolic pressures, and therefore it will represent an increased afterload on the left ventricle. It means that the aortic valve is going to have to. The aortic valve will open at a higher pressure if we augment the aortic diastolic pressure. So this is exactly what we see here. We see that we have to go to a much higher pressure before we get aortic valve opening, and that leaves very little actin-myosin interaction for shortening and for uh, active ejection of blood from the ventricle. So increased peripheral resistance is absolutely consistent with what we see here. Let me re-emphasize for the 14% of you, if we have a change in contractility, I need to see this end systolic pressure volume relationship move. I need to see it rotate up or down. And that would mean a change in contractility, either an increase or a decrease in contractility. Okay, so here's 
here's what we got so far. And, and here's, I think, where we have to have a paradigm shift occur in your head. And I, and I can't emphasize enough how much that paradigm shift has to occur. Because you will chase your tail endlessly with cardiovascular physiology if you don't take this paradigm shift. On the left, we have Starling's experiments where Starling controlled right atrial pressure on the x-axis. And he looked to see how that changed stroke volume and cardiac output. The key point here is that he experimentally controlled right atrial pressure. On the right, we've got Dr. Guyton's vascular function curve, where he controlled cardiac output, and he looked to see what changing in the pump activity did to the right atrial pressure. And he demonstrated, of course, that by driving the pump harder, you would cause a drop in right atrial pressure because you were removing fluid from that space and forward translocating it. Now, what we're going to do for this paradigm shift is realize, after all what I've been telling you for the last few days, right atrial pressure and cardiac output control nothing. Right atrial pressure does not control cardiac output. And cardiac output does not control right atrial pressure. They've got nothing to do with it. We now have to make a little shift in our thinking. Both right atrial pressure and cardiac output are themselves the variables that are determined. Therefore, these are the output values from the system. What does, therefore, control cardiac output and right atrial pressure? Well, it's not apparent from these graphs because it's not on the axes. It's the inotropy. It's the vascular volume. It's the venous tone. It's the compliance of the ventricle. It's all of those factors that change the shape of the curves. They are the determinants. And what we do is we look to see, with that constellation of determinants, what cardiac output are we left with, and what right atrial pressure does that leave us with. Cardiac output and right atrial pressure, they themselves are the output values, both of them. The input values are from the internal mechanics of how the whole system works together. But now we're in a beautiful position because we know how to predict it. It's like simultaneous equations. We lay our cardiac function curve over our vascular function curve, and of course, there's only one point on that graph that we can possibly have. It's the point where your vascular function curve coincides with your cardiac performance curve, and therefore, my cardiac output is gonna be four liters per minute, and that will correspond to a right atrial pressure of three millimeters of mercury. And I must emphasize this. Right atrial pressure does not determine cardiac output. And cardiac output does not determine right atrial pressure. Forget all of that. Physiologically, both of these things are output variables. Now, if that is our patient's cardiovascular function curve and their vascular function curve 
they will only have one single cardiac output associated with one single right atrial pressure. And you can see here that it's four liters of cardiac output and three millimeters of mercury right atrial pressure. Therefore, how do we change cardiac output? Well, we change cardiac output by changing our cardiac function curve. Inotropy rotates the cardiac function curve, gives us a new cross point. Change the compliance of the ventricle, moves the cardiac function curve, gives us a new cross point. Change the vascular volume, moves our vascular function curve, gives us a new cross point. All of those factors that we've talked about so far, they're determinants of the situation. And the beautiful thing is, if I can make an assessment of what's changed with all of those, I can now predict what my new steady state cardiac output and right atrial pressure will be. So, nothing like breaking your flow, is there? You don't actually need the graph. Now, I know you'll get this right, because Dr. Murray will have told you the answer to this. So this is what was called peripheral augmentation. You find that there is an augmentation of pressure as you move from the aorta out into the arteries. And the reason for that is because despite the fact it's the same stroke volume and the same pressure wave that's propagated, the nature of the vessels in which that pressure wave has been propagated changes. The compliance changes. Remember. The aorta is a rubbery structure. It's compliant. It balloons as we fill it with fluid. The arteries aren't like that. They're tough structures. So what we find is, as that pressure wave travels into these more rigid structures, it augments the pressure. Simply because we've got a lower compliance in the arteries than we do have in the aorta. The easiest way to imagine that is this. Let's imagine I take my... And it's exactly the same analogy I use time and time again. Let's imagine I take a pump and I pump a liter into an IGA bag. What's the pressure in there now? Atmospheric. I take the same pump, I pump the same liter into a balloon. What's the pressure inside the balloon? Much higher than in an IGA bag. Why? Because that structure is more elastic and bears down on the volume. So... The firmer a structure is and the less compliant a structure is, the more elastic elements it has that kicks against the volume, the higher is the pressure. And the same thing is true as we move from the aorta into the arteries. The aorta is compliant. The arteries are not. They're stiff. They're elastic. They resist that volume influx and we get an augmentation of the pressure. Now that is actually what underlies hypertension in old age. As we get older... All the structures 
that should be more compliant get less compliant, and all the structures that should be less compliant get more compliant. And we tend to find that the vessels get less compliant, they get harder, get harder in the arteries, and that gives you hypertension. Even if the pump activity of the heart didn't change, even if it was the same stroke volume, even if the peripheral resistance didn't change, firming up the arteries causes an augmentation of the pressure because they resist any stretch. Well done. Okay, femoral compliance is lower than aortic. Absolutely. What's number four? The femoral radius is smaller than aortic. Yeah, but it, it's not so much a radius thing. It's more the kickback from the tissue, the elastic recoil of the tissue that causes the pressure. Okay, so here's our guide and cross plot. This is our patient. This is their cardiac function curve. This is their vascular function curve. And what we're going to do is we're going to show you how you can change cardiac output and what effect you need to employ in order to change cardiac output. So here's what happens when the sympathetic nervous system causes an increase in contractility. We activate those beta receptors on the heart and we get inotropy and we get bigger beats and we cause a rotation of the cardiac performance curve up to the left. You can see here, therefore, we go from the solid red line to the dotted red line and you can see now that our cross point is elevated. That comes with a higher cardiac output and at the same time, a lower right atrial pressure. Now, this is the thing that sometimes people struggle to understand is, why do we have a low right atrial pressure? Look, forget Starlin's experiment. You've got to let go of Starlin's experiment now. You've got to recognize that right atrial pressure controls nothing. Cardiac output controls nothing. What does control it in this case is that the increased inotropy and the increased contractility gave us a new cross point that corresponds with a higher cardiac output and a lower right atrial pressure. Now, if you want to understand that change in right atrial pressure, just think this. If I give bigger pumps and bigger forward translocations, that means I removed more fluid from the right atrium, and therefore the right atrial pressure has to fall. Now, the good thing about that is that a drop in right atrial pressure means there's a bigger pressure differential between the central venous pressure and the right atrium, and therefore, we just fill that void, and we keep the system moving forward in steady state. So we actually augment forward flow at the same time as we augment the pressure gradient for fluid delivery to the heart. So the drop in right atrial pressure is a good thing. That keeps forward flow from the venous system back to the heart in order to supply the volume per unit time in order to increase the cardiac output. On the other hand, this is heart failure. When we have a decrease in contractility, a failure of the myocytes to contract, our new cross point is at a lower value. You can see here that we suffer from a low cardiac output and lo and behold, an elevated right atrial pressure. Now what have we been banging on about clinically? How do we see these elevated right atrial pressures? Jugular venous distension. The worse the inotropy is, the worse the contractility is, the worse it falls and the higher the right atrial pressure goes. We've got a failure of forward throughput. Therefore, we've got a buildup of blood in the venous side that's perfectly visible to you. Now, 
let's make sure that we go through this one at a time. What about when we don't change cardiac performance? Let's keep the cardiac performance absolutely stable. But instead, we're going to increase blood volume. And by increasing blood volume, we push the mean systemic filling pressure up and we stretch out the relationship to the right, and we find that we've now got a new cross point higher up. That corresponds to a higher cardiac output and an elevated right atrial pressure. That makes sense. If you fill the system with more fluid, you're going to see a higher pressure in the right atrium, but you're also going to see more throughput through the heart. If you remove fluid from the system, for example, a hemorrhage, then the problem is that the mean circular filling pressure falls and we go to a lower cross point. Now that corresponds to a lower cardiac output and a lower right atrial pressure. This is what then happens if we start to move more than one factor at a time. Because remember, we can change any of those things. We can change the inotropy at the same time as we change blood volume. Or we can change the venous tone at the same time as we change ventricular compliance. Any and all of those factors can change, and they are the determinants of the system. So here what we've got is an increased total peripheral resistance. Now, an increased total peripheral resistance is an increased afterload, and an increased afterload is a depression of our cardiac performance curve. But at the same time, what's happening to your vascular function curve? Well, it doesn't change the mean circular filling pressure here, but if we increase peripheral resistance, it does retard flow delivery from the arterial to the venous side and depresses our vascular function curve. So what we've got here is that we would have a lower cardiac output but no real change in our right atrial pressure if both of these changes were roughly equivalent. On the other hand, what happens during exercise? During exercise, we decrease peripheral resistance. Remember, during exercise, we're supplying the muscles, the skeletal muscles. Since they make up such a colossal mass of our bodies, all those metabolites that are building up cause a drop in peripheral resistance. Well, that drop in peripheral resistance means a decreased afterload on the heart. A decreased afterload on the heart means you rotate your cardiac performance curve up to the left. So we go from the solid line to the dotted line. Whereas a decrease in peripheral resistance doesn't change your mean circular filling pressure, but it does augment the delivery of blood from the arterial to the venous side. And therefore, we can augment cardiac output and venous return. So in this case, our new cross point is up at this point, a higher cardiac output, and again, not much of a change in right atrial pressure with the two magnitudes of change that are shown here. Right, there's no way you can read that. Uh, so let me summarize for you. Which of the auscultation patterns would represent aortic insufficiency? So first of all, is this going to be a systolic or a diastolic noise? Diastolic, absolutely. So there's no point looking between S1 and S2, is there? Because that defines systole. We've got to look after S2. Now, notice here S2 is split in a few of these into its two component parts of pulmonic valve 2 and aortic valve 2. That's a split S2. Um, but what we're looking for is aortic insufficiency. We're looking for a diastolic murmur. Okay. 
So that leaves us with options B, D, and E. Hi. Who was that? No one. No, no matter. Okay. So, B, D, and E. E, we can rule out Y. There are two features to E that can rule out clinically. One is the opening snap. That's associated with a different valve problem. But what's happening towards the end of systole? Atrial kick. We wouldn't hear that with aortic regurgitation. So that augmentation of the murmur towards the end of diastole doesn't happen with aortic regurgitation. So we're left with B or D. Right. This is a little tougher because we can talk about it. If the aortic valve is insufficient, do you think that it's louder when it closes or softer when it closes? Of course. Obvious, isn't it? Therefore, it's the quiet aortic closure rather than the high, loud aortic closure. And therefore, it is B. Beautiful. Okay. So why are we looking at guiding cross plots? The reason we're looking at guiding cross plots is because we want to talk about heart failure. And we want to understand what are some of the adaptive responses that happen in heart failure and why they help. And what are some of the later responses that don't help and cause even more problems. And what can you do about it? What's your role going to be? That is there entirely for a, a summary. That's everything that can happen to a cardiac performance curve, everything that can happen to uh, a vascular function curve. That's not for me to talk about. You will notice that slides are for two reasons. One is for you to read at home, and two is for me to talk about. That's one for you to read at home. Cardiac performance curve and vascular function curve. Let's see what we can glean about these things. Oh, come on. G give up on the questions. Let's move on. We'll come back to that at the end. I want to get on to something functional. I want to get on to heart failure and how we manage heart failure and why early heart failure is naturally compensated and why late heart failure is not. So what are the, some common symptoms of heart failure? Well, these are all nonspecific failure of flow through from the heart. You've got dyspnea. That means we're breathless. That's especially prevalent in left heart failure where if we've got left heart failure, we get pulmonary congestion. We get augmentation of the vascular volume in the pulmonary system, and of course, that leads to uh, dyspnea. It leads to poor oxygen delivery. But on top of that, heart failure leads to dyspnea just because a low cardiac output means low oxygen supply, and low oxygen supply feeds back to your brain, and it tells you that we need to ventilate more, and we feel this air hunger. We want to ventilate more, and of course, we want the heart to go faster. Orthopnea. That is a breathlessness based upon your position. That means when you lie down, your breathlessness gets worse. When you stand up, your breathlessness gets better. Now, why might that be? Well, again, we did mention this quite a while ago, but it's as you lie down, that vascular volume that's out in the periphery relocates to the thorax and augments the pulmonary pressures. And by augmenting the pulmonary pressures, it makes your breathlessness worse because, of course, that's a diffusion barrier. And also, it changes the compliance of your lungs. They're less able to uh, bring in the ventilation that's required. 
So orthopnea is a phenomenon that when someone with heart failure lies down, that high vascular volume ends up in the thorax and exacerbates the pulmonary edema, makes things even worse, which is why you're going to find the patients sleep upright. They don't like to lie down. They put lots of pillows under them, and they sleep sitting upright because they don't get the exacerbation of the pulmonary edema. Paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, that's exactly related to orthopnea. They go to bed, they lie down. 20, 30 minutes later, they're waking up terribly breathless because all that volume relocation has taken place, and they're waking up in a panic. So paroxysmal means sudden, nocturnal, you know what that means, and dyspnea, you know what that means. Persistent cough and wheeze. Of course, you're going to get those because, again, any increase in the pulmonary vascular pressures is going to start irritating the receptors down inside the uh, lung mucosa, and we get cough and wheeze. We're going to get edema. If it's pure left heart failure, we get edema in the lungs. If it's right heart failure, we get edema out in the periphery. If it's extremely advanced left heart failure, you're going to get it into the lungs, which puts load on the right heart, which then goes back into the periphery. So it can follow the way back all through the system. Fatigue, obvious. Low cardiac output, low oxygen delivery. They feel all tired all the time. And tachycardia is pretty obvious as well because the sympathetic nervous system is trying to augment cardiac output. And one of the ways that it can do that simply is to increase chronotropy, increase the rate of depolarization at the sinoatrial node and augment cardiac output in that fashion. Of course, the problem is it's working a heart that's failing. So although it's an appropriate sympathetic response for a young, healthy individual, it's not a particularly helpful response to a person whose heart is in failure because you're asking that heart now to do more work. So this is really the pattern of what happens during heart failure. One is that their cardiac performance curve gets worse. And that's a gradual deterioration of the cardiac performance curve over time. Now, what are the exact cellular mechanisms? Uh, not entirely understood, not entirely clear. However, uh, one of the most common things that you're going to come across is coronary artery occlusion, ischemic events to the myocardium, and the more ischemic events the myocardium is exposed to, the worse its contractility gets. It starts to change the expression of ion channels and all sorts of things. As I say, it's not entirely clear at the cellular level what it's all about, but repeat ischemic events lead to a decrease in contractility. Now, as the cardiac output falls, because obviously as the inotropy falls, we go to a new cross point. Here was our normal cardiac function curve. Here's our normal vascular function curve. Cross point was here at 5 liters per minute with a right atrial pressure of 2. Now we'd go down to here if we only look at the drop in contractility. That would be a marked drop in cardiac output and a marked increase in right atrial pressure. Now let's just draw that on to highlight it. So this is where we would go to if no compensatory change took place. So if the heart failed, the contractility got worse over time, this is exactly where we get to. However, as the cardiac output falls, renal perfusion falls. As renal perfusion falls, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system kicks into action. It senses, it's the only part of the body that has a flow sensor. Everywhere else there's baroreception. 
the kidney has flow reception. It recognizes that perfusion through the vasculature in the kidney has dropped. And therefore, we get a very strong renin-angiotensin-aldosterone response. Now, of course, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone response is designed for one thing, and that's to augment vascular volume. We get aldosterone. That causes a huge recruitment of absorption in the distal part of the nephron. We reabsorb everything that gets filtered. We've got low urine output because we're reabsorbing everything. Angiotensin goes up. That means we cut down on glomerular filtration. You know, the best thing you can do to stop losing fluid is to quit perfusion to the glomerulus because any perfusion to the glomerulus potentially ends up as P. So cut down GFR. That means no P is produced. We save all that fluid. So the renangiotensin-aldosterone system is very effective at bulking up vascular volumes. On top of that, the sympathetic nervous system is likely to be causing a deal of venoconstriction and trying to push more blood back to the heart. Now, you might say to yourself, well, why doesn't the heart just respond with an increased inotropy? Well, it would if it could, of course. But we're talking about a failing heart. We're talking about a pathological heart. We wouldn't have pathology if we could just do things like that. We have a system here where the heart is failing. Now, the sympathetic nervous system is trying to increase the inotropy, but the heart's just not able to do it. So we get this gradual diminution in the cardiac function. However, look what happened because of that extravascular volume. Because we pushed out our vascular function curve to a higher mean systemic filling pressure, and we can sustain a higher total potential venous return, what we did was we bought back a whole bunch of cardiac output. And you'll notice that that came with a new elevated right atrial pressure. So this is compensated heart failure. This is when the patient's contractility and cardiac performance is waning, but if we pressurize the system by increasing the vascular volume, we can regain some of that cardiac output and we can maintain a fairly good uh, output from the heart. Now, the whole point is, what can you do to help? What can you do to augment this cardiac function? Well, one, you could target inotropy. You could try to buy back some inotropy. So you could put the patient on digoxin, something that augments calcium in the heart and tries to bring the inotropy up. One of the better things you can do, however, is to target afterload. Give them a drug that drops the peripheral resistance. And by dropping the peripheral resistance, we drop the aortic diastolic pressure, we drop the afterload, and that buys us back a lot of stroke volume. And also, it's cheaper to do because we have to get to less higher pressure in order to open the aortic valve. And then, of course, the other big thing we can do, maybe the biggest thing we can do is what? Slow the heart down. Now, what we said is costly. Every beat is costly on that isovolumetric contraction. Therefore, less beats, bigger stroke volumes. So give them a beta blocker. Slow their heart down. And then reduce their afterload to buy back more stroke volume. That way, you're going to extend the life that they've got in terms of stroke volume delivery. Now, what I want to talk about is what happens. So that's what that next slide shows. It's really just talking about targeting uh, those two factors, the afterload 
and uh, inotropy there as well. Now, what I want to really do is draw out for you decompensated heart failure. So let me just pop another slide in here. Let's imagine that here's our cardiac performance curve. Here's our vascular function curve. This is right atrial pressure. This is cardiac output. And here's our heart failure. We go to a new lower inotropy. What we then respond with is that the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system bulks up vascular volume, increases mean systemic filling pressure, and gives us this cross point instead of this cross point. Now that gives us a higher cardiac output, but it does give us a higher right atrial pressure. Not that the right atrial pressure is then to worry about, but it's a sign. It's a sign that things are going wrong in the patient. Now, if we continue to let the patient get worse, course, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system continues to bulk up vascular volume. But the problem is there comes a point where we're on the plateau of our cardiac performance curve and going to higher and higher vascular volumes, although that's what the body is driving for, it's not buying us back any more cardiac output. Because you can see here, look, that at this point, Here's our cardiac output. Now, the body will continue to bulk up vascular volumes. It didn't buy us back any more cardiac output. We're now on the plateau of our cardiac performance curve. The renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is still desperately trying to pressurize the system because it thinks pressurizing the system delivers more blood to the heart and it will respond with more cardiac output. Now the problem is that the right atrial pressures are up to colossal pressures. We've got massive end diastolic volumes. And those massive end diastolic volumes stretch the ventricle out. Now, what is that going to do? What does the law of Laplace tell us? The law of Laplace tells us that if I stretch that ventricle out, those myocytes are going to have to work even harder to provide wall tension to get to the pressure to open the aortic valve. On top of that... what I was going to say. Mind blank. On top of that, we've moved into the descending limb of the length tension relationship. We're now getting actin-myosin moving so far apart that there's not enough actin-myosin overlap to provide a nice contraction. This is now decompensated heart failure. And by the time your patient ends up here, Unfortunately, there ain't a great deal you can do for them. One of the first things that you're going to do, because in compensated heart failure, the extravascular volume is useful and helpful. By the time the patient is getting close to decompensation, it's the vascular volume that actually provides the horrific quality of life. Because you get terrible edema everywhere in the periphery and in the lungs. The breathlessness gets incredibly severe. The patient gets incredibly uh, 
upset about that because it just feels absolutely, it feels like you're drowning. You're drowning in your own fluid. You're in volume overload. The first thing that you're therefore going to do is try to get that volume down. Try to relieve those lungs of all that congestion. So you're going to fill them up with diuretics in order to buy this volume back to lower values. You're not helping the patient in terms of the heart function, but by this stage, it's all about making the patient more comfortable. So you fill them up with diuretics. You restrict water intake. That comes with its own problems. My mother-in-law went through this last summer. Desperately thirsty, constantly. Yet, you're telling them, no, you get nothing to drink today. You know, you get like 50 mils a day, something like that, because any amount of fluid ends up in the periphery. So what eventually happens is, of course, it's the fluid overload that provides the terrible experience for the patient, and that's what you end up trying to manage in order to make life much easier for the patient. Now, by that stage, there's not much you can do for the heart. They will die, and they will die in a very short space of time. But your point now is to try and make that death a comfortable one rather than the nasty one of drowning in your own fluid. So, that is decompensated heart failure. We get to the point where initially the fluid was helpful. That now becomes the problem. And we try to manage that and control the fluid and make sure that it's not a problem for the patient. Heart failure is kind of in this flow diagram here. Again, I don't have to labor the point, but with ventricular failure, we lose cardiac output. Now, what we've not had time to talk about yet, but I believe uh, Dr. Murray will talk about, is what then happens to the arterial pressure and what then happens to the baroreceptor reflexes that try to correct for that. Because clearly, the one thing we care about is pressure. You know, we could have put flow sensors everywhere. We didn't. We put a couple of baroreceptors on the arterial side. Now, that's good enough because the logic is as long as I've got pressure, the circulation can decide what it wants to do with that pressure. So you'll have to learn a little bit about the baroreceptor reflex and how it tries to uh, protect us here. But clearly, for today's purposes, a low cardiac output would drop arterial pressure and, of course, we would get an increase in sympathetic activity, an increase in angiotensin II, increase in aldosterone and vasopressin. All of these things are trying to tighten up total peripheral resistance to maintain pressure because the logic is maintain pressure and we can maintain peripheral perfusion through the tissues. Blood volume will go up, venous tone will go up, venous pressure will go up, and that should help to correct for the low cardiac output. Systemic vascular resistance will increase, and that should also augment the pressure and make sure that we've got enough perfusion of the tissues. I don't labor that. That's just some numbers for you to see what happens to the patients here. So here's your normal cardiac output at rest, 5.6 liters per minute. Here's a chronic heart failure patient at rest, 4 liters per minute. The crucial part is when you exercise, when you go run around that field or go up to Glover's gym there, you are very able to markedly increase your cardiac output. And that's because you bring that contractility, you bring that sympathetic tone on the venous system, you stretch out your pressure volume loop on either side, and you get nice big stroke volumes and a massive augmentation of cardiac output. You can see here a patient with heart failure 
That doesn't work. They can barely increase their heart uh, cardiac output in response to any kind of stress. So really, this is a failure of contractility. We cannot produce the stroke volumes, and we certainly cannot uh, increase activity and expect the heart to increase its workload because it's just not going to happen. Despite the fact, look, their heart rate soars. That's not a good thing. Again, that's putting far more work on the heart. So the heart is working like the clappers, but the stroke volume is pathetic, and it really doesn't end up with any increase in cardiac output. Their stroke volume there is, is oh, gosh, 120. I mean, 120 is still pretty high for resting heart rate. That's 170 if you're exercising. You can see here the stroke volume is the key. As you've got a nice big stroke volume, the stroke volume of the patient with a failing heart is much, much lower. Only 50% stroke volume there. Okay. What are we also going to target in terms of trying to control heart failure? Well, we've already mentioned them. Beta antagonists slow the heart down. ACE inhibitors, because they uh, try to reduce afterload. Remember, angiotensin II causes vasoconstriction. We want to reduce angiotensin II, so we put an ACE inhibitor in, and that should reduce blood pressure, reduce afterload, and less work for the heart to do. Or we can actively vasodilate. Instead of just trying to block vasoconstrictors, we can actually add something to actively vasodilate. Calcium channel antagonists, so that the periphery block the calcium channels. We cannot contract smooth muscle out in the periphery. Therefore, we can't get vasoconstriction in the periphery. Diuretics. Again, when we go into more advanced heart failure and the volume is becoming a problem, make sure they're on diuretics so that, that doesn't become a problem. And then venodilators. Um, so just like we had said we want to control the work of the heart, we can choose any part of a pressure volume loop and try to minimize it. We can reduce afterload. We can uh, reduce preload. So that's adding nitrates to give venodilation because that gives us less preload. It gives us a lower end diastolic volume. With a lower end diastolic volume, we truncate our pressure volume loop. That, therefore, is less work for the heart to do. Okay, let's end on a question. Yes, sorry. One is a beta-1 receptor activation. Two is an alpha-1 receptor activation in the vasculature. An M2 receptor activation at the level of the heart. M2 receptor inhibition at the heart. Calcium channel blocker or decreased myocyte calcium stores. So the key to this is figuring out what will result in the smallest end systolic volume of the left ventricle. So what would be a better way of wording that question? Yes, 
which of these full-on agents rotates and increases contractility? That would be really what we're asking. Which one of these gives us a bigger contractility? Now it makes it easier, because a bigger contractility means a lower end systolic volume. So the bigger contractility will come because of what? Beta receptor activation. Sounds likely, huh? Beta receptor activation, absolutely. More cyclic AMP, more calcium channels, more contractility. Rotate ESPVR to the left. Okay, remember, I'm still going to be holding office hours, so don't forget me. <laughs> <laughs>